Good morning, church. You've all had very good weeks, obviously. Uh, I don't want to ruin them, but this morning's about conflict. Way. Hello. Great. Okay. So we carry on with our um, sermon series, looking at James four. Um, so the text this morning runs from James four verses one to twelve. Um, And some of you may have noticed that recently, over the last few months, um, in the media, on the news, in magazines, in newspapers, that this year marks the 100-year anniversary of the Battle of the Somme, the most famous battle of the First World War. Next year will mark a 100-year anniversary of the Battle of Passchendaele. Um, Not as particularly well-known as the Battle of Somme, however... Um, The Battle of Passchendaele has come to be known as symbolizing the sheer inhumanity of the First World War. And we have a picture uh, of Passchendaele in in the presentation. Yeah, mud is basically what Passchendaele was all about. 30 days of rain and shellfire stripped the land where uh, the British forces were fighting of any living thing except man trying to kill each other. It was the worst circumstances you can imagine. And this is in, bearing in mind, this is in Belgium, a very flat country. So when this kind of stuff happens, uh, it, it causes absolute mayhem. The mud was so bad and the conditions were so bad that men even drowned in the mud. Uh, and an English major uh, told, tells this story. A company of men passing up to the front line found a man bogged to above his knees in the mud. The united efforts of four of them, with rifles beneath his armpits, made not the slightest impression, and to dig, even if shovels had been available, would be impossible, for there was no foothold. Duty compelled the men to move on up the line, and when two days later they passed down that way, the wretched fellow was still there, but only his head was now visible, and he had gone raving mad. That is the nth degree of where conflict takes people. Um, I imagine when the history books were written, when, the, when God um, consummates everything and, and everything comes to an end, the history books will say they didn't get on. Men and mankind did not get on, and that is what characterizes us. There may have been a few breakthroughs and a few inventions here and there, but all along the way we fought each other um, to the extent where that happened. So war is everywhere. You see on the news global conflicts, We see civil wars in dozens of countries around the world, the threat of terrorism on our doorsteps, um, even the threat of nuclear annihilation is always there. But even down to the more everyday stuff, so petty feuds between neighbours, long-standing family arguments, um, conflict within church, between church members, and maybe even this morning you may have experienced a bit of conflict coming into, into church as you drove on your way. There's conflict all around us. Um, Even on the streets and in our cars, uh, you may have experienced that this morning. So conflict is everywhere, um, and Christians cannot avoid it. We don't um, get a a get-out-of-jail card just because we become Christians, but what we are called to do is to model something different in how we engage with conflict. Um, And James 4 is what that is all about. James 4 is about conflict in the church but there's a lot for us to learn about conflict in our, in our lives in general. So the theme of James, as we've been learning, as we've been going through this series, is that we ought to be doers of the word and not just hearers. 
Um, and one of the ways we can be a doer of the word is to learn to live peaceably with one another uh, and to represent something different to the world. Um, the context of what James is speaking into is that the, the church, the Jewish church that he's writing to, has been experiencing persecution and poverty. Um, and as a result of that pressure, conflict has entered the church. Um, and this is what he wants to address. So, strap yourselves in. Um, because James doesn't hold, doesn't pull any punches, uh, and he speaks with a bit of pointedness. Um, so I'll read James 4. We should have the whole text behind us. Great, thank you. He says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You cover and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and one judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So in the beginning, there was conflict. First children born to Adam and Eve were Cain and Abel. And Cain and Abel are known for the fact that Cain kills Abel. Cain lived a sinful life. Abel lived an upright life. Um, so God rejected Cain's offering and accepted Abel's offering. And so full of jealousy, Cain kills his own brother. And so here we have the first example of strife between people, between families, and that becomes the blueprint for every relationship to come. So Genesis isn't just a story, it's also meaning behind it, and it tells us um, so much about the depth of what humankind is in our relationship to God. You fast forward a few hundred years, Corruption in, in mankind and unrighteousness and sin had spread so much that God ended up regretting making mankind and his solution was to start again um, with Noah and the flood. Skip forward a few thousand years, Jesus has died, risen again, and now we're at the church. The church is also experiencing conflict and there's conflict amongst church members. Um, and what James does is he highlights five causes of relational conflict. In that passage we just read, he, po he points out five things that are going on in this church, and there's five things for us to learn. First one being selfish desires. He says, your passions are at war within you. You cover and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Um, he's basically saying all the world's conflict comes from uncontrollable desires that it's all about self-fulfillment, self-glory, self-indulgence, self-obsession. This is the pattern of the world. Um, and we have, this we have these innate desires jostling within us, 
um, status, revenge, envy, self-protection, and they cause frustration amongst us when those things aren't met. And that frustration gives birth to conflict. See, sin is essentially selfishness. It's all about me first. Um, you can escape. You can escape your family for a while. You can escape your work. You can go on holiday. You can escape your circumstances. The number one problem is you can't escape yourself. Um, and in a church context, we have to recognize that this can be incredibly poisonous. When we come to church um, and our number one desires are to be noticed, our number one desire is to be praised, or our number one desire is for status, and it's all about my story, um, and it's not about God's story, or we don't um, honor other people as more significant than ourselves. So when we become Christians, we may see some instant change. I remember I did. I remember when I became a Christian, it became very easy not to swear. I used to be very terrible when I was playing football. Um, I used to swear at the top of my voice, even at the referee. Um, but that, just within an instant, when I became Christian, that became so much easier. But the vast majority of change that happens in us, us learning to be less selfish, is gradual and slow. Um, it's because these desires are so rooted within us. Um, it's a habit of a lifetime to live this way. And so for God to rip ourselves away from um, that selfish uh, existence, he has to do some long and hard work within us. And John Owen, um, famous Puritans. The Puritans are, are, are known, we have a quote from John Owen. Puritans are known for their relentless uh, attitude towards um, purity and living right lives. And so John Owen, who's written a book, a very famous book about how to deal with sin that's, that's in you and how to um, change in a long, with a long-term view. He says, make it your daily work. Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. The second thing that James wants to point out towards us, what's going on in this church, um, is prayerlessness. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. But when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So James is saying that there's a direct link between fighting each other and conflict in the church and not praying about the issues that are going on and causing the conflict. Prayerlessness is a sign that someone thinks that they can run their lives in their own way, run it under their own strength and under their own authority. And instead of praying about desires that might surface within us, the desire to be noticed, the desire to be praised, um, without praying about them, we end up indulging them. Uh, and if, if, if we struggle with selfishness as, as our natural desires, then um, obviously this turns into conflict. So James is rebuking the church, this church in particular, because they want God to rubber stamp their agenda, which is a total misunderstanding of what prayer is meant to be. Jesus teaches us what prayer is meant to be. It's meant to be about reorienting our desires um, and looking at God's concerns, not ours. Um, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, not our kingdom come and our will be done. It's all about looking at God's priorities. And so conflict um, happens in the church when God's grace and his goodness aren't at the forefront of our minds and we're not daily and all of us actively seeking God's uh, face uh, and building our relationship with him. The third thing Jesus, uh, James wants to point out uh, is worldly living. Verses four to five, he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's a pretty um, simple equation. 
Friendship with the world equals enmity with God. You can't have both. But what does James mean by the world? He's obviously not talking about the floor, terra firma. He's not talking about anything physical in this world. He's talking about what represents the lostness and ungodliness of this whole system that we live in. The Satan-directed, man-centered system, um, which is by nature hostile to God. In Romans 1, it says that God condemned the world and gave them over um, to their desires. Um, John gives us a, a, a definition of what is meant by the world. He says, everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. So the lust of the flesh, it feels good, I want it. The lust of the eyes, it looks good, I want it. And the pride of life, everything all about me, self-gratification, putting me first. Uh, a, a famous theologian, Robert Johnson, puts it better than I can. Uh, it's quite a long quote, but it's worth reading. Um, He says, God made the world very good with beauty and harmony everywhere. All things around contributed to man's rational happiness, ever sending up his thoughts and his affections in admiration and love to the great creator, so that he, in the sublimity of reason and free will, the Lord of the creatures, led the chorus of the world's praise. So that's before the fall. Everything was great. But sin, alluring his heart from from his heavenly father, brought in jarring discord The devil became the prince of this world, and what God had made order, he made chaos. The world was now enveloped in a distorting and misleading atmosphere of falsehood. All things presented themselves to man's mind and heart in untrue dimensions and relations. And instead of drawing him toward God and leading him into the land of uprightness, guided him further away into the far country of wickedness and death. Thus now God and the world which he created are morally in opposition to each other. So when we look at worldly conflicts around the world, that's basically going on underneath the surface all the time. Um, that's why we end up going to war with, with other countries. Um, and there, is no, there are no winners in war when we see it. And nobody wins, really, ultimately. Everybody becomes bitter. There's great losses of, of humans and art and culture. And both parties end up becoming hardened. And it takes a lot, it takes decades, perhaps sometimes centuries, for that forgiveness process to take effect. Um, the fourth thing that James wants to, pr- to bring our attention to about the cause of conflicts is a casual attitude towards sin. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Um, it could be easy to look at that and think, well, God obviously wants us to be miserable, doesn't he? Um, but the point he's trying to make is, it should grieve us when we see division in the church. It should grieve us when we, when we experience conflict in our lives and we can't be content with it. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Um, it's a hands thing and it's a hearts thing. It's attitudes and it's actions. That's how we overcome conflict. That's how we live in peace with each other. Um, but, but being casual in our attitude towards um, sin that's going on um, is a bad thing and, and James would much rather um, we mourn and weep if it means that we don't have conflict with each other um, which is this amazing paradox because Christians are called to be the most sad people in the world but also the most joyful people in the world most sad because 
they see the sin in the world and the devastation and the destruction in the world, the most, all the tragedy, their eyes are open to it, but also the most joyful people because they've got Christ and his hope. Um, so there's this paradox we're invited to, to embrace both sadness and joy. He says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So we've got to recognize that it's not just ourselves involved in conflict. The devil is also very present in conflict and loves it um, when he sees us betraying our loyalty to God and indulging in conflicts. Um, But James is saying, look, stop fighting each other. You need to fight the devil. And how can we do this? Well, determine ourselves not to be brought in by the devil's lies. the, the The devil's number one weapon is to accuse you of lies and to fill your head with lies about who you are and what his church is and who God is. Um, Not to indulge our pride is another way we can fight the devil. And we find that as we resist him, he flees. There's no foothold for him. I've experienced this. Um, This rings true. This is a very practical piece of advice. When we resist the devil, he flees because he realizes that you're submitting to God's kingdom and not your own. The scripture says that Satan looks for a foothold in your life. Um, so we need to not give him that foothold. Sam Albury, in his commentary on James, says, To resist the devil is to draw near to God. Will love of self draw me from God? Or will love of God draw me from myself? I'll say that again. Will love of self draw me from God? Or will love of God draw me from myself? There is no third option, no neutral place. We are either friends with the world or friends with God. We cannot pursue both. And the last thing that James wants to show us is slander, talking badly about each other. He says, The one who speaks evil against our brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. It's a bit confusing what he's saying, but essentially it means um, when we look at the Old Testament and the summary of the law is to basically love your neighbor as you love yourself. So when we speak bad of each other and we... um, we slander people behind their backs, we end up denying God's law, which is, which is to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, and we end up judging God's law and saying that it doesn't apply to us or that it's actually wrong. Um, so we need to look very carefully about how we speak about people when they're not with us, because God hears it, and as James is pointing out, it affects the unity of the church when we speak so freely about people. So the trials and poverty that this church is experiencing um, is leading them into conflict. Um, and James wants to show us that um, we can redeem those pressures and they can, we can allow them to push us into God. Um, so as I've been talking about all these frustrations amongst the church and amongst each other and people and conflict between nations, there is an obvious elephant in the room. If you can't read that, it says, I'm right there in the room and no one even acknowledges me. Um, The elephant in the room in this case is our conflict with God. We cannot possibly hope to have right relationships with each other if our relationship with God is not right. Um, We need the vertical relationship between us and God to be right before we can expect horizontal relationships to, to work out. And so James says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. That is worth wearing around your neck as, as a motto for life to live by. Um, the point that James is trying to make is that opposition between people can be pretty awful, can be pretty nasty and uncomfortable, and it can cause you sleepless nights. 
But opposition from God is a far more horrifying reality and consequence. See, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and caused the fall, that was a step away from God. Um, That was a first moment of strife between mankind and their creator. Um, And again, the blueprint of mankind is created. We're all born in Adam. That's what scripture says. We're all born into the same situation that Adam has created. We inherit uh, a discord relationship with God. Um, And that's why Jesus says we need to be born again. It's not just a tweak here or there. It's not just a little bit of realignment, but we need to be completely born again. We need to completely start again. Um, And that's why James says he shows us more grace. So despite all of this conflict with each other and a conflict with God, God shows us more grace and God does it wonderfully. God shows us how to overcome conflict by overcoming conflict with us in the way that he deals with us. So the first thing that we see in the gospel is that God initiates the reconciliation between us. We're the offenders, God is the offended, and yet he, in his mercy and his grace, chooses to initiate the reconciliation. Um, That's an example for us. Um, He shows that he's for us. Despite, Despite being the sinners, despite him giving us life, despite him allowing us to live every day and giving us children and families and jobs and livelihoods and food to eat and clothes on our back, we have sinned against him and yet he is still for us. God is for us and not against us. And the third thing that he does and demonstrates to us is that he does it with love. He wins us through loving us. See, God could force us to go his way. He could force us. He could defeat us with arguments. He could strong arm us. He could convince us of the stupidity of of rebelling against him. He could do all of those things and it would be perfectly just and he would have done us no wrong. But instead of doing those things, he defeats us with love. He wears us down with love and affection and kindness. See, the Bible, the whole book of the Bible is about conflict from page one to the last page. But it's also a book about God's love and he has written us a love story Um, to melt our hearts, to win us, to woo us back to him. That's how he does it. That's how he deals with conflict. Um, An amazing story is if we remember Barabbas. Do you remember the story of Barabbas during the Gospels? It's easy to overlook it and just see it as part of the narrative and just a a bit of detail here and there. But there's this, this amazing thing going on with Barabbas. Barabbas was a notorious prisoner. We have a picture. There we go. There's Barabbas on the left, uh, right, sorry, Jesus on the left. Barabbas was a notorious prisoner. Uh, he was a rebel, he was an insurrectionist, he was a thug, he was rightly in prison. And then we have Jesus, the Son of God, never sinned, loved people, kind to people, healed people, um, spoke uh, gently to them. But there was this Jewish custom um, to release a prisoner every Passover. Um, and Pilate gives the Jewish crowd who are baying for Jesus' blood, he gives them the choice between releasing Barabbas as part of this Jewish custom or releasing Jesus. Um, we know that he reluctantly yields to the crowd's demands and releases Barabbas instead. Now what I mean when we, we've got to try not to just overlook this is that Barabbas in this story, God is showing us The Holy Scriptures are showing us and the the writers of the Gospels are showing us that we are Barabbas in that situation. We trade places 
with Jesus. We're the guilty ones. We're the condemned ones. We deserve punishment. But yet Jesus takes that instead. And that's an amazing picture of what the gospel is. Could you imagine being Barabbas in that situation? This really happened. Could you imagine being there, watching Jesus walking off to get whipped, to get shamed, to get stripped naked, hung on a cross while you walk free? Despite your guilt, despite your shame, despite the fact that injustice has been done. We can't be naive here. This is the most amazing gesture of love that God shows us. This is a picture of the gospel that we have traded places with Jesus. Um, And that's how God woos us back to him. We look at that demonstration of love that he gives us um, and it should melt our hearts towards him. The challenge is not to be guilty in that situation. God has done this to set you free. He has liberated you. Judah Smith, a well-known preacher in America, says your greatest challenge is not your devotion, your discipline, your focus. Your greatest challenge is believing the gospel, is believing this every day, believing that picture of Barabbas and Jesus, believing that every day, because that changes you, that melts our hearts. So we look at the fact that God initiates the reconciliation between us and him, and that's a pattern for us to follow. And just as a side note, when Paul writes in Ephesians, he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. That's a challenge for us husbands. That means that in a a situation or a feud or an argument with our wives and our families, if we're going to love them like Christ, that means that we initiate the conflict. Uh, We initiate the resolution. (laughs) Quite the opposite. We initiate the resolution, um, which which is very hard when you're tempted to sulk, when you're tempted to, to want to dig your heels in, the best way that we can love our wives is by initiating a resolution. Um, and we can do that in the power of humility. See, we see Jesus' humility in walking to the cross in our place is our answer. His life that he lived, this humble life that we see, story after story of him choosing humility over pride is an example to us. His death, humbling himself even to the point of dying on a cross for us um, is an amazing example of humility. And his spirit comes to live in us. When we accept Jesus as our saviour, his spirit comes to live in us and it gives us the power to live beyond our pride and to live a humble life. And the amazing effect of humility is that it can kill conflict dead, like that. In an instant, humility can undo so much so many years of conflict and bad feeling. Because when you embrace humility and you decide to shun pride, you're showing and demonstrating that it's no longer, it's not about you, it's about them, it's about their goodness, and it's also about God. And it changes your focus from yourself and your hurts and your needs and your wants, and it puts your focus onto the other person that you're in conflict with. It also liberates us to be honest with ourselves, to, to stop um, living this pretense that we've all got it sorted out, none of us sins, none of us makes mistakes, um, and it liberates us to accept mistakes and uh, admit mistakes. Um, and that kind of liberation and humility in, in an argument and in a feud can do so much good. Um, humility enables us to, to have empathy with other people and their situations. When we can recognise mistakes in us, we can recognise mistakes in other people. 
because pride assumes that you're always right. And when you've got two people both coming to the same situation and they're full of pride, both people stop listening because all they want to do is get across their point of view and convince the other person that they're right. But we have Jesus as our example. And that's why Paul writes in Philippians um, 2, says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Um, which is an amazing challenge, but Jesus, Jesus shows us the way in that. He shows us that he lived that very verse of doing nothing from selfish, selfish ambition and living in humility and counting others more significant than himself. Um, if I can just invite the band back um, onto the stage, please. Um, during the First World War, there was a reverend called Julian Bickersteth. He was an army chaplain, um, and he had been quite pro-war. Um, he thought that it was God's will that we went to war, that soldiers went to war and fought for our country. Um, so he went to the front lines to minister to the soldiers there, and he was posted at a refuge um, quite near to the front lines, quite near to Passchendaele, within six miles of, of the front lines and the trenches. Um, and the first morning that he was there, 120 men from the front lines came um, to give their lives to Christ, ready to head back to the trenches that same day. Such was the horror um, and the fate that awaited them. And obviously impacted by this, Julian Bickersworth, Bickersteth um, visited the, the, decided to visit the front lines himself. Um, and from going from being this pro-war person, um, ignorant of what the, the actual reality was, um, he couldn't believe the horror that he saw. And in his journals, he wrote that this is the most appalling country it has ever been my misfortune to see. Swamp, shell holes, stench, water, mud, broken down tree stumps, destroyed dugouts and gun bits, unburied bodies of horses and men all over the place. He tells of how um, more than a dozen times while he was ministering to men on the front lines, they just died in his arms. He carries on with his journal. He says, when will the senseless murder end? My nostrils are filled with the smell of blood. My eyes are glutted with the sight of bleeding bodies and shattered limbs. My heart wrung with the agony of wounded and dying men. Meanwhile, um, back in the UK, the propaganda machine um, pumped out positive messages of victory and how smoothly it was all going on the front lines and um, we're pressing forwards every day. And so that's why Julian Bickersteff says, it's maddening to those of us who know the truth. See, he had been changed by seeing the, the reality of what was going on. And that should ring true to us, that should sound familiar to us. When we go from being enemies of God to being friends of God, it should wake us up to the reality of what's going on in the world and the conflict that's going on. And it should madden us to know the truth that all the conflict in the world could be prevented if we were just to lay down our arms, lay down um, our pride and take up humility and take up what Jesus has for us. And it should bother us when we see conflict in the world, especially in the church, because the world is watching us. We're the Bibles that they're reading. Um, we're the message of hope that they're reading. Um, so we need to be peacemakers, not just amongst ourselves in the church, but we need to be peacemakers with the world and to show something and model something different. And this is a famous 
verse, you hear it read at weddings, 1 Corinthians 13. Um, But it's helpful to remind ourselves of what love is, what God's definition of love is. He says, uh, Paul, writing this, says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all (coughs) mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, and love is kind. Love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful. It does not uh, rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a kid, I spoke like a, kid, like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love.